0: Hello and welcome back to Commish Talks. Today's episode, Josh sat down with Corey Leff, the founder and editor of John Wall Street, which is now a part of Sportico. Today's show, the two of them talk through the importance of seeing beyond the numbers and what it takes to truly identify trends and the reasoning behind them in the sports world. Before we get started, if you're listening to an Apple podcast, be sure to leave us a review and we hope you enjoy. Corey, welcome to the show, Commish Talks. Uh, Corey, uh, as we do with all of our guests, start us off with a little background and history and how you got to where you are today.
1: Yeah. So uh, I launched John Wall Street. Well, I should probably start even before that Uh, I started my career in sports talk radio. That's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to, I grew up in New York. I wanted to be Mike Francesa. When I, when I was 20 years old, I got a big break. John, I went to the university of Arizona and John Rooney uh, at the the, the time Tucson hosted spring training for a couple of different baseball teams, including the white Sox. and John, John Rooney was the voice of the white Sox at that time um, had, put on the local flagship uh, for the U of A, which um, I was interning for at the time. And he heard me on the air. And uh, he basically called the program director there who was his buddy and said, hey, I just found you guys the next great radio host. So I had my dream job at 20. Um, I quickly learned that talking about Arizona basketball 12 months of the year was not my dream job. Uh, you know, as much as I love the program, that's um, just not the most stimulating conversation. Yeah. So, uh, there was also money was certainly a part of that as well. Uh, I, I won't lie. Um, I'll never forget. I went in, when I went in for the interview the first time and they were going to bring me and I was all excited, right? I was still in college and they're going to hire me uh, and they're like, yeah, we're going to we're going to pay you 18 And there's no room for negotiation. Uh, I'm like, Great, I'll take it. Um, By the time I left, you know, I'm doing remotes at casinos to just scrape by, and you know, I think I was asking for like thirty thousand dollars, and they were like, "We can give you a four percent raise," and I'm like, "Yeah, that's just not going (laughs) to work." So uh, I ended up leaving leaving radio, um, you know, kind of my passion uh and i I kind of backed into the startup space for a while uh worked for a couple of different nondescript startups um and then i spent uh five years in the equity research space and so john wall street which i started back in 2017 really became just a a collection of everything i had learned uh, over my career i took the sports the business the finance um, and saw an opportunity to Kind of covers sports business or sports finance from a bit of a different perspective, more of like a, you know, I always compare John Wall Street to more of like a Harvard Business Review than, you know, a a traditional news outlet like a Bloomberg or something like that in the finance space. So um, that's kind of, you know, initially how it got started or or the origin behind it. Initially, the thought was that it was going to be equity research, it was going to be content marketing to sell equity research. Uh, Kevin Durant tears his uh, Achilles. Madison Square Garden Networks drops by eight or 9% on the day, and I can explain how those two things are tied together. And oh, by the way, we have a report on Madison Square Garden Networks that you can buy. Um, I still think it's a really viable model, actually. Uh, and, and the more I, you know, the deeper I kind of get into sports business, the more I'm learning that uh, executives across the industry are reading these equity research reports, and not necessarily because they're investing in public equities. Um, most of the time, they're really just doing it as kind of industry recognizance where they're you know, looking to identify trends and see what some of the most successful companies in the world are doing. So um, I certainly do believe that that's a viable model. But really early on, I, I linked up with a guy named Joe Favarito. Uh you, you might know Joe. he dealing with Joe, yeah. Okay, yeah, I always I always talk about Joe in in the terms of like he's Kevin Bacon of sports business. Um <laughs> like everybody is connected to him in one way or another. And uh basically I had sent Joe like 30 early stories that I had written and basically just said, "Hey, what do you think about this, you know, this concept of kind of covering uh sports business and sports finance, but more from an analytical perspective than like a news breaking perspective." And he loved it and he said not only do i think you know you have something uh, but i think i know how to execute it and joe was great um you know he joe mentors a lot of guys like me um uh, he said he did say i was a little bit old uh to have a mentor uh when we first met um i'm 37 now so at the time i might have been like 35 34 um but but he was great uh and and made a lot of introductions for me really early and I started to build this audience of really movers and sh- one of my dogs is scratching. Olson, stop it. Um, Olson, by the way, is uh, is named after Luke Olson, uh, the former Arizona basketball coach. Yeah, that's the tie there. Um, but yeah, so I had started to build this audience of high profile, uh, influential movers and shakers within the sports business, team owners and high level league exec, team and league executives and media and sponsorship CEOs. And so uh, not necessarily the institutional investor. Uh, and so I just, I, I kind of shifted years pretty early on and I stopped writing about stories that were necessarily tied to public equities. I still will get into that stuff. I've since introduced the John Wall Street Sports Index. Um, but. Basically, covering stories that I thought were were going to provide the most value to that audience, to the the the, the audience that's kind of pulling the strings behind the whole industry. And so, yeah, that, that's that's kind of uh, you know what John Wall Street became. Um, I was lucky early on, I I received a couple uh, of kind of big breaks um, in the sense people always say like, well, how did you get started? Like, you know, when you have no audience. And so uh, I I didn't want to, you know, I'm spending even even in the early days when I was working full time in equity research, I was spending, you know, three, four, five hours a day writing the newsletter. And so you don't want to do that if literally nobody's reading it. And and that's that's like, I think, a hard part that a lot of people who kind of want to do this type of, of of work, you know, run into is that, you know, they're all excited about it. And then they realize that like, I'm putting in a ton of time and nobody's consuming this content. And that's really frustrating early. Um, but I was able to get bro Bible uh, and bleacher report within like the first month, both to agree to syndicate the content. And so that was huge for me because like I said, it gave me the motivation to write every day um, and, and slowly but surely kind of build this audience. And uh, like I said, while I'm really targeting the the industry movers and shakers, it helped to have, you know, the fan, uh, if you will, you know, from those platforms reading it and, and some of the educated fans would want to, to read more of it and would sign up. And, and so I slowly but surely built this audience. And, uh, you know, here we are three years later. And um, in between, I had a stop at Sports Illustrated. And and now, uh, you know, we're under the, the Sportico platform.
0: So talk about the relationship with Sportico and where your audience has gone. If there's been any shifts in your audience or learnings you've had from the audience. Um,
1: i wouldn't say shifts other than the one that i mentioned you know really early on i just kind of shifted the the lens that i was putting stuff through um you know like i said initially my thought was that i was going to write be writing for an institutional investor um and that was not necessarily the the audience that i I started to build and so i shifted the gears and like i said i started to cover stories that i thought would be actionable um and insightful for for the industry for, for the the top of the industry and and that's kind of the lens that I've been working through since. Um, I I wouldn't say that there, you know, I've had, you know, learnings about the audience per se. I I certainly have found that there are there are things that are more of more interesting to people than others, Um, you know. People, I, I don't know what it is, but stories about expansion or relocation are, you know, always do the best. Um, you and know, it's what
0: a, I was looking for. Is What do people want to read? What, what trips are trigger?
1: Yeah. I mean, those types of stories do well. Um, they also love emerging leagues. Um, people are also fascinated by emerging leagues. So like anything that I would write on the XFL or um, the AAF before that um, and or, or, you know, Pro lacrosse, you know, like whatever the P- PFL or PLL, PLL is that P- Paul Rabel's league, um, you, you know. So, but yeah, basically, uh, any people love relocation, expansion, and 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 new leagues. Those are the stories that uh, tend to reach a audience that go even beyond the hardcore, you know, sports executive. Um, they tend to have more of wider appeal than than you know the the narrow audience that I'm, I'm targeting.
0: Let me, let me ask you about the PLL and, and forgive me if this description is wrong, but I believe it's a single entity venture backed company, correct? It is. And give me your sense of the PLL it's likely success because it deviates from the norm of a 501c6 governed by different owners, all having an equal vote and clearly we've had single entity with MLS before, which has now spun out to be something a little different, but talk to us a little bit about that governance structure and what you see fitting into the next century
1: yeah that's a good question um i mean i won't profess to be an expert on the business model of uh you know of pll um you know i think that the most interesting thing about the pll is not necessarily the ownership structure uh which is certainly different but the the touring model structure and the concept that uh you know we're not going to put teams in in cities and i think that is a really smart approach um you know i think you know the xfl and and we I won't get into the, you know their, my thoughts on, on their future um, because it's a totally unrelated conversation. But um, you know, I, 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 th- I th- I've always thought that it's really hard to put an ex- you know a, a new team in a new league in a mar- in markets that have pro sports um, and expect to make any semblance of waves. Um, so the idea that we're going to and I don't know if you've ever been to the lacrosse final four, but that's a an awesome event um, and Uh, I'm from New Jersey. So I've been to that event a whole bunch of times for a long time. That event was at Rutgers um, or it would be at Rutgers, like at every other year. Um, I've been to it in Philly. I've been to it in Baltimore. So that's a great event. It's like a weekend party and uh, there's, you know, there's a big tailgate scene and um, you know, the PLL's concept was if we could recreate that every weekend in a different market, we can be successful as opposed to trying to sell out a venue or forget, sell out, try to put fans in a venue in, let's say, you know, so they have six or seven teams in three different venues and three different markets every weekend. Um, I think that's an uphill battle. Uh, And so, you know, I'm, I'm more fascinated with their, their touring approach than I am even with the ownership structure.
0: Yeah. I would say that's interesting. I think we're about to get into pandemic related issues, but if you look at baseball too, and you're familiar probably with United Shores league, Andy Appleby, out of Michigan, whereby they have one stadium and put four teams in there and just rotate rotate them and has had huge success. And what we're seeing in baseball is that model has been recreated in Sugarland, Joliet, I think a couple others. And there is a thought that if it's successful economically, that those will actually continue and they'll get rid of the traditional circuits where they travel. They'll continue this single stadium, four different teams, fans you know attached to whatever brand they want of those teams and maybe the players on those teams it's fascinating you have any comments on that potentially
1: well sure i mean it kind of goes along with that whole gen z concept that you know people that that the Gen Z isn't necessarily a fan of teams, but they're a fan of, of individual players. And so, uh, if if they're not going to be passionate about their local team, and it's going to be really hard to get them to be passionate about their local team. In, in a city like New York, where you have you know nine pro sports teams or something like that. So um, yeah, I mean, I really like the idea of, of everybody you know eliminating the travel costs, um, eliminating you know paying for multiple stadiums every weekend, um, and, and all the expenditures that go into that. Uh, and then, I mean, I don't know how um, – uh, I know that there's a uh, a new women's softball league uh, that's kind of operating uh, under a, a similar model where uh, there's going to be a draft and all the players are – you know, every week the um, – The teams change the play. They redraft every week because it's not about the people aren't a fan of the team. They're a fan of the of the players. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting shift and something that will be certainly worth watching uh, as we move forward and and specifically as it relates to, you know, leagues that are trying to, to, you know, kind of break into a really crowded space.
0: No, I I think you agree, and in fact, in the MASL, the league I commissioned, the soccer league, we've had tremendous success in international events in cities in which we don't have a team. So we'll go to Boise, Idaho, U.S. versus Mexico, great success. Um, We've gone to other cities where we do have teams and actually have had less success than, in fact, cities that are coveting that particular product that they don't have. But when you get it all winter long, you're not looking for another event in the summer, but for those cities that haven't seen it, want to see it, you get a big turnout. So there, there is something there, I think. Um, let's talk about the future of sport a little bit, especially as it relates to economics. And I have one particular question about streaming everybody and their brother now streams their events. Is there ever an opportunity for tertiary sport to gain enough traction or make sense financially um, to put in massive production within their entities, or is it just, you know, something that'll never work because the big five are always going to have all the eyeballs. I guess it depends
1: on what your expectations are. Um, you know, I think certainly through the next round of negotiations, we're going to continue to see the big sports on linear television. Um, you know, but I, I wrote a story this week, uh, earlier this week with Brian Verne from uh, Wave TV, Wave.TV, um, and, you know, their whole thing is that uh, gen, the Gen Z audiences are, are long tail sports fans, um, you know, that they have huge followings for gymnastics and Uh, all sorts of of niche, you know, what we might call niche sports, basically anything outside the big four. Um, And so, you know, there is a belief that there certainly are that that, that fandom and sports fandom uh, goes beyond, you know, football, basketball, baseball, and hockey. And, um, you know, I, I think it's all, it's all about expectations. Um, You know, are they going to draw, you know, is any gymnastics probably is not going to draw 15 million people at four o'clock on Sunday afternoon, like the NFL is. Um, But does that mean that they don't have a passionate and rabid following that, you know, advertisers would be interested in and, um, you know, programmers would be interested in? No, I don't think that that's the case. Uh, So, um, you know, I, I guess it's all, it's all how you're, you know, what you're looking for, but yeah, no, I think it's certainly realistic to believe that the next generation of sports fans will, um, will have a, or or not will, but does have a, a, um, a much wider, uh, level of interest in, in sports than, than, you know, maybe those that came before them.
0: Interesting. And I think along the same context, I was just asked this on a recent panel, Major League Baseball clearly has some issues with an aging audience and take back. And the the question was posed, will baseball go away? My response was baseball will probably go from like 14 billion down to 12 billion in revenue, but they're not going to go away. You want to comment on the thoughts that baseball is really in hard times right now?
1: Yeah. You know, again, it was, it was something that I wrote about. It's it's super timely because I wrote about it earlier this week, but you know, remember back in 2018 baseball put, a bunch of games on Facebook, like 25 games exclusively on Facebook and the demographic for that audience was like 20 years younger than Major League Baseball's linear television audience. So, uh, you know, I certainly don't believe that baseball fans are aging or that the next generation of fans is not interested in baseball. Um, it kind of gets to, to the point of, you know, where are we delivering these games? Um, we, we continue to hear that uh, the, the millennial and Gen Z sports fan is interested in, in snacks, that, you know, they want highlights, they're not interested in watching a three hour baseball game. Um, And I'm not sure that there's any evidence of that. Um, You know, I think that the case may be, we're only delivering them snacks. Uh, We're not delivering them full meals on the platforms that they're currently residing. We don't run full games on social and digital. If we did, I tend to believe that, uh, you know, that those audiences would watch them. And as somebody said to me the other day, Uh, it's not as if they're watching Fortnite on Twitch for two minutes. They're watching Fortnite on Twitch for two hours. So um, again, I I don't buy into the narrative that uh, the next generation, you know, doesn't have as long of attention spans or or, or any of the other uh, kind of tropes that are out there. I think it's much more along the lines of, you know, what we're giving them. And um, you know, if we, if we gave, those fans, the content on their platforms where they're already living, they would watch them. The, the fact of the matter is, is that Gen Z doesn't watch television. So if all of your content is on television, they're not going to see it. They're not going to watch it. And the only content they're going to consume are the highlights that they see on social.
0: That's fascinating. And I'm going to roll a little along with this demise of baseball thing. You know, Gary Vaynerchuk's big thing is Mike Trout could walk in your naked and we don't know who they are. How does baseball fix the lack of star power in the league right now?
1: That's a good question. I mean, I I had heard that, you know, trout doesn't really want the publicity, Um, you know, I I, I don't know about that. Um, You know how they can fix the star power issue. Um, You know, there certainly are no shortage of talented players and and young talented players. Um, You know, I, I guess, you know, perhaps Encouraging those guys to be more active on social, like I think that's part of the NBA's. That's kind of the beauty of of what the NBA has built is that their players, and it's not not really what they have built. It's just I guess the the demographic of the players that they have, um, but those players are super active on social, uh, and, and you know, I've always said, in in my opinion basketball isn't nearly as popular as popular as one would tend to believe if they're on Twitter. Um, You know, if you're on Twitter, uh, you know, it it, it is reasonable to believe that basketball is the number one sport in in America. Um, And, and obviously that's just so far from the truth. Like their national games, to like a million viewers or a million and a half viewers. It's like, it, 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 it's not, it's not even close um, to even what local baseball does on a nightly basis. Like basketball has the, the, the benefit of their players being very active and vocal on social, and they've built up personal followings. Um, you know, certainly encouraging the baseball players to, to be more active and, and have direct communication with their fans would go a long way, but it's not something that I I think that a league can mandate. Um, you know, it's, it's the players have to want to do it. And, um, and if it's not authentic and part of their daily routine, it's not going to work. So I I don't really have a great like solution. Like, how do you get Mike Trout more popular? I, I, I wish I did. Um, but, you know, I, I think it all again, it, ultimately it all falls into communicating with the audience on the platforms that they're on. And if if baseball's marquee players are not active on social and digital, then um, that generation is, is not going to find them.
0: Corey, to that point, you know, I've spoken to some NHL executives, they have the same frustration because the culture of hockey is you never talk about yourself. So the players, if you watch... NHL player interviews. It's about the guys, the boys and the team. And, you know, there is nothing where they say, boy, I went out and did this tonight. I mean, they constantly deflect because that's the culture of that sport. So it's really fascinating what, which sport breeds more, I guess, promotion of those players. And, um, I've got my hands in a number of different sports and it is very different how players want to portray themselves on the field, individual sport, team sport so on and so forth, it's fascinating.
1: You know, one thing that you just, you said, well, you know, you might not be able to identify Mike Trout walking down the street. You might not, but you probably could recognize Trevor Bauer um, and and the reason for that is because Trevor Bauer is super, uh, you know, outgoing and active on social. And so, you know, again, I think it's just, it's, it's just about speaking to the audience, you know, where they are and, you um, you know, I don't know how you, I don't think that's something that you can force or mandate. Um, you know, it, it has to be part of the culture.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. And you're right. I mean, from the commissioner's office, trying to tell players how to behave even on the field difficult, let alone off the field, using their own personal devices and personal handles. So let's talk a little bit about the future, um, or I guess current pandemic economically, how What do you foresee for football, college football and NFL this year? I think I just heard an announcement, camps for college open on Monday. NFL's already in camps. Talk a little about the upcoming football season.
1: Um, I'm much more optimistic about the NFL than I am about college. I mean, college is an uphill battle. You have serious problems on the college level. I don't know if you saw yesterday, uh, Mark Emmert, released a a series of guidelines that schools have to follow uh in order to to play fall sports not just football but all fall sports and that includes testing players every week uh and getting testing back within 72 hours um that's problematic on, on two fronts one being that a lot of schools and i'm talking about just about everybody outside the power five and probably some within the power five Testing all of your student athletes on a weekly basis is cost uh is cost prohibitive um, there's just not money in the budgets to uh to spend an extra five hundred thousand or a million dollars this fall testing all your athletes every week um and, and so okay while the power five conferences could probably get through that challenge. And, you know, we saw the Pac-12 talking about taking out loans that they can, you know, sell against that, uh, you know, that they can leverage against future TV deals. And, uh, you know, there's money, probably those, those schools will probably be able to find the money Um, at the G5 level at the, at the championship subdivision level. that's not going to be possible, um, and so you have uh, cost is an issue. Um, the other issue, and, and by the way, this is a good story I'm going to run on Monday. So I don't know when you, are, you guys are airing the podcast, but sign up for the newsletter, Sportico's newsletter, because it's going to be in, in Monday's piece. I had a couple different ads talking about this. Um, uh, on you know on on so you have th- that's one challenge that you have. Uh, but I talked to uh, the California Davis ad as part of this story, um, and the, from a finance cost isn't their issue. They have a hospital and, and a medical program on campus um, that is is that that is able to offset a lot of the costs, not just for sports, but for all, all students, um, which is another challenge. A lot of schools don't have medical facilities on campus. And if you don't have medical facilities on campus, that means you got to pay somebody else to, to perform the testing. Um, their problem is there's a supply chain shortage uh, of these tests and in Northern California. And They don't think that they can get enough tests to test all their athletes every week. Uh, So whether it be cost uh, or availability, um, I think college football outside the power five is in real trouble. Uh, Inside the power five, great. You can test every week. I don't think that solves your problem. Uh, The leagues that are working inside the bubble are working because they're testing every day or every other day. And okay, so let's say we test on Saturday morning or, and and even if it was a rapid test and we got the test back, the test results back immediately so that players can play that afternoon, um, okay, we, we eliminate anybody who's, who's, you know, failed the test, who's tested positive, um, and everybody else plays. And then what happens? Okay, that night they go out uh, and then they spread coronavirus all over the campus all week, and then we come back and test again on Saturday and now half the roster can't play you know so um i, I don't think that there's enough testing on the college level i don't think it could be afforded I, I i think college sports if college sports uh if college football gets through their season i think it's going to be a miracle
0: um, I I, something i can touch on there too regarding testing is that 72-hour return mandate you can't control so for example in june i had a deal with the lab to get tests and they said yes we we can definitely do that orders will be delivered overnight one week later, I said, where's our test? I said, ah, sorry, CDC jumped you on priority. So those tests are now gone. So what's going to happen in the middle of the season? There's some massive outbreak and all the tests are gone. And there goes the mandate out the window.
1: Um, 100%. Yeah, you're, you're 100% right. Uh, and and as cases continue to spike, those timeframes are getting longer. So, um, yeah, I think college college sports, is in, college football, college sports, whatever you want to say for the fall semester is in trouble. Uh, on the NFL side, I think the NFL has a better chance uh, than, than perhaps others would lead you to believe, Um, you know, baseball for all the challenges that they have, they're still playing. Um, And, you you know, the NFL is gonna have the advantage of learning from, from baseball. Um, And there's so much money at stake. I, I think that, I think that the NFL will find a way to get it done um you know obviously costing cost of testing and that kind of stuff is not the issue the issue is going to be can you uh you know can you keep 50 guys uh healthy and from spreading it you know to the rest of the teams um and and i think again talking college versus pros yes we have seen some you know some nba players go to strip clubs and we've talked we heard about a baseball team go to a casino uh i think a large I think when push comes to shove uh, on the football side, most players will be responsible, um, particularly when they realize, you know, what's at stake, what we're seeing on the baseball uh, end, where, you know, one guy getting sick is, is threatening the cancellation of the entire season. And I, 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 you know, maybe I'm a little naive in that way, but, you know, I, I think that that people will, will take it a bit more serious and that the NFL season will get in.
0: Corey, subjective question. Um... When players have opted out of the NFL or MLB, how bad does that hurt the brand and the credibility of the season? And 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 then tie that to economics.
1: You know, I, I really don't think it has hurt, the, you know, from a perception standpoint. I mean, we're, we're playing seven inning games, and you want to talk about guys not playing hurting the credibility of the season? Like, I, I don't think that um, from a, you know, this season's going to, people are going to look at this season with an asterisk, You know, regardless, Um, I I don't think it's having any impact on the economics of the game. Um, You know, uh, something I want to write on next week, which I think will be interesting on the NFL side is NFL careers are so short and it's all about getting to that second contract. Um, It'll be interesting to see how many players are willing to sacrifice that year um, and delay that payday. Uh, You know, you might be. I know 60 something guys have opted out of the NFL season. I haven't done the analysis yet, but I, I, I tend to believe that the majority of the players that are going to opt out are gonna be guys that are already in their second contracts. Um, I have a hard time believing that a guy on a rookie deal who's under contract for four, you know, especially the, the guys, the, the, especially the first round picks that are under contract for five years, uh, and then you, you have the option to slap a franchise tag on them. So now you're talking about a sixth year um, are going to willingly sit out a season and delay that the average NFL career is like three and a half years. I, I just I, I don't think that NFL players are going. To, I don't think that young NFL players are going to opt out
0: you think the perception among players, let's say MLB's trust, MLB players trust to MLB about coronavirus is different than an NFL players trust the NFL about how they're going to handle the coronavirus.
1: Um, no, I, I, I don't. Um, I mean, I know that there's a lot of uh, animosity between the, the players and the, and the, uh, and the owners on the baseball side. Um, but no, I, um, I don't. Um, and, and maybe that's naive on me. I, I think, um, you know, public perception might be a little bit better, but I, I, I would venture to say that the NFL players probably, I mean, we've seen it. There's been 60 something guys that have already opted out. Clearly those guys don't think that the, the, the protocols in place, um, are, are going to be sufficient. So, uh, no, I don't, I don't think it's a trust issue.
0: Okay. Corey, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about your relationship with Sportico and tell the audience about Sportico because our listeners are huge sports business fans. This is an avenue and a new medium for them to get different kind of content than they've ever had through the traditional sports business medium. So talk about Sportico a little bit.
1: Yeah. So Sportico is Penske Media's new sports biz outlet. It launched, uh, I think we're three or four weeks in now formally. Um, you know, it's kind of it's it's kind of sweet from our perspective in the sense that while we're a startup, um, you know, we're not really a startup. We're we're a new brand under a Penske Media label that has 20 something brands. And so it has the infrastructure um and and certainly the financial backing to be successful, uh, which I think is is different than, you know, a, a, a and any other new entrant, kind of in the space, um, but just philosophically, I think we all kind of saw, and, and by we, um, you know, myself, uh, Scott Sashnick, who's the, the editor in chief, uh, Dick Glover, who's our CEO. I think we all kind of recognized that there was this opportunity to to really target the who's who of the sports world, uh, to 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 speak to the team owner and the league commissioner and to uh, to provide those guys with actionable insights and, and girls uh, actionable insights um, and and kind of really tell it down the middle um, historically the the sports business space has been driven uh, it 's been the content side of the sports business space has kind of been there to supplement a, a conference business that isn 't really targeting. Uh, the the ownership level Um, you know you'll see team owners at some of these sports business conferences but they're always on a panel they don't attend Uh, and they're not attending because there's no value in it for them Um, but because those businesses are driven by conferences um, appeasing sponsors is is kind of the number one game in town Um, you know Scott comes from a Bloomberg background, uh, you know, a real like reporting background. And so we're looking at it, you know, just a little bit differently, uh, in terms of, of the content that we're trying to deliver. Uh, we're, we're certainly trying to be much more analytical, um, and, and not just give people the news. Certainly we're, we're breaking stories. Uh, you know, we, Scott broke a huge one this week about, uh, you know, the rock and Redbird, uh, buying the XFL out of, um, a bankruptcy and that uh got a lot of kind of national attention but then you know we followed it up with you know a whole bunch of other pieces that were more analytical and uh one that i wrote about um uh you know gosh now i'm totally blanking on uh, on what my piece was um but the you know i wrote a piece uh, michael mccann wrote a piece you know about the bankruptcy process um just generally speaking, I think uh, you know the idea is we don't want to just give people the news. We want to tell them you know why the news matters, how they should be thinking about the news. Uh, we want to identify trends early, and so um, yeah, I mean it's 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 much more of a uh, a strong content play, um, and and it's much more about um, giving those people that audience the um, the insights that they that they need and they want.
0: I would say, too, it's deeper content. So the one thing that has always been bereft of traditional sports business media is I get reporting of numbers, but it doesn't tell me what's next or what's the strategy or or where things are going, like the trends, as you discussed. So I think myself and our audience are looking for what's next in your reporting so yes uh rock did this deal with redbird capital now what what does that signal to the world what should it signal to support in our strategy so it's a piece of content that's definitely coveted out there
1: so the you know okay so I, I remember so now my piece was about you know okay well what does the rock and redbird do with the xfl now okay so um and and we're not going to have fans uh, probably in 2021. Uh, and you know I think if you look at the XFL business model, you know XFL 2.0, you know the Vince McMahon XFL, renting out MetLife Stadium for a million dollars a week in New York uh, and having 2,500 people in there like literally makes no sense at all. Um, so the story i wrote was uh you know kind of about the strategy uh and what the plan is moving forward and basically the idea is that the rock redbird they're not going to relaunch the xfl unless they can find a tv deal that is uh going to make the league cash flow positive uh without fans so it's an option play um if they can find the tv partner and they can uh, If they can find a tv partner and they can be profitable from the day they step on the field they'll invest in the league and and we'll have xfl 3.0 and if they can't then we won't um but yeah i i mean i think just generally speaking the idea is is that there's a lot of people putting out news um there are not enough people uh, putting it into context and telling people why it matters
0: that's awesome Corey, we appreciate you on the show. Hope to have you on again. I think was one, one of the best podcasts we've ever had. So thank you so much for your time.
1: I appreciate it. Always happy to do it.
0: Hey, podcast fans. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Commish Talks. If you enjoyed it, be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and we'll see you next time.